for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, I am blue. You are bright and shiny in my mind. You got me loving, hating, crazy indecision in my mind. Welcome to the Fall Podcast, where the focus is on deer hunting, tips, tricks, tactics, and stories from across the Midwest. And now, here is your host, Aaron Blasey. Welcome to the Fall Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Blasey, and this is episode number 90, number 90. And I've got some big news. This is the week of Justin's one-year anniversary of being on the podcast. Congratulations, man. I'm going to give you a round of applause. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure. It's, uh, <laughs> I know. It's been a ride, man. It, it doesn't even feel like it's been a year, honestly. No, and I think a big part of that is because I kind of got rather inconsistent with my contributions uh, once, uh, I guess it was probably in August. Once I started my mule deer hunt and then rolled into elk and I don't know, just hunting season started super early for me this year and I kind of fell off the grid for a while, but uh, it's that time of year where it's settling down finally. So here we are. Yep. You were definitely out of, you were definitely off grid there for a while. I mean, I didn't talk to you for like four weeks cause you were like out of pocket. I couldn't even talk to you. Yeah, it was, it was a while. Uh, so much, so much happened. Like, my stepdad passed away. I got called off, off the mountain in Utah to go to Virginia and then came back to Iowa for like two days and, I don't know, October came and I went to Maine. Uh, I don't know, deer season happened somewhere in there and I don't even know where the time went. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really did. Well, you and I got found time to, to get together for one evening. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you stopped here for one so night. That was good. On the way to Kansas, I think it was. Yep, crashed on your couch. Yep. Cooper's old yep. bed. <laughs> yep. Thanks a lot, Cooper, for cleaning the sheets. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, cool, man. I'm excited about today. Yeah, me too. This is a big one. Yeah, I'm 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 excited about it because uh, today we have Mark Kenyon on from Wired to Hunt, and I mean, if anybody doesn't know Mark Kenyon in the outdoor industry or the podcast world, you know that revolves around hunt, hunting and, and outdoors. It's I don't. You must be living under a rock because yeah, uh, he's yeah. been basically the the godfather, as I would call it, the OG to start you know these podcasting and in this kind of wave that everybody's starting to latch on to now which i think is great i don't think there can be enough outdoor hunting podcast to be honest with you no it, there's there's not it's it just seems like it's it's one of those things that if you've if you're putting content out on social media or youtube or you know anywhere um people are realizing the weight that podcasts have now and um you know one thing i didn't really realize about mark uh, until I really started paying attention to him, but um, you know how big of a public land guy he is, and I don't know how many people know this really or have seen it, but uh, he's migrated over to Meat Eater. He's with Steve Rinella now and, and Giannis Putellis, and uh, he does a lot of stuff with their podcast now. And it's, I mean, he's had great success with with his with uh, Wired to Hunt, and like I said in the recording, I'm I'm not surprised to have seen him make that jump. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I started following him. His 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 podcast with Mark Drury, and I'm sure he hears this all the time, uh, his podcast with Mark Drury, and I want to say it was like episode 63 or something. Now he's up to like 300 and some, I, I believe. He's done a lot of them. And um, the episode 63 with, with Mark Drury is like the first one I ever heard of, first, first podcast I ever listened to ever. You know, not just his, but in general. And from there, I was hooked. And I want to say that was back in like 2014 or 2015 or something. And I've been hooked ever since. And then, you know, a year and a half ago or a little almost two years ago now. Yeah, almost two years coming up on two years of this podcast yeah. being being live. Um, I really wanted to make that jump and wanted to, to do kind of the same thing, but in a, in a different manner, a little different manner but more of like, you know, all whitetail things. And, and, uh, he was the one that really kind of, you know, he doesn't know it cause him and I didn't talk about it, but he inspired me to do it along with his co-host with, uh, you know, Dan Johnson with the nine finger Chronicles. They were the first two I listened to. So they really paved the way for the fall podcast. And, you know, I, I'm super appreciative of him doing that and he didn't even know it. <laughs> so yeah, I'm excited to have uh, him on here and talk about a variety of things. You know, we're going to, we're going to break down his book first and then we're going to get into yep. some whitetail stuff as far as like relevant like what's going on now and what's coming up here in the near future so i'm pretty pumped about that yeah it's going to be a good one for sure it's uh his his view on conservation and and preservation of public lands and you know he, he talks about it but as being kind of what inspired him to write the book and you know he kind of realized there's there's more to be said about it than what we're all seeing you know, in the public eye and, you know, with, with all the controversy around public lands and access and, uh, I don't mean controversy, like it's a bad thing. It's just, there's, there's a lot of opinions about it. So it's, um, obviously a, a subject near and dear to his heart and, uh, you know, good for him for, for writing the book and, and putting his two cents out there. Yeah, and before we get Mark on here, I do just want to take a second and just kind of say, you know, if you do want to pick up a copy of his book, his book is called That Wild Country, 
an epic journey through the past, present, and future of America's public lands. So head over to like Amazon, Barnes and Noble. I know Target's carrying it, and pick up your copy of that book. And also, you know, go to Instagram and check out Wired to Hunt and Facebook. And also, you know, check out the Meat Eater stuff because he is doing some stuff, you know, with Meat Eater. He's got a cool project going on right now called the Back Forty, which I've been super impressed with and and watching and following along the whole trip there. So go and take uh, take a look at all that and. Uh, yeah, I guess with that being said, let's let's kick it over to this interview with Mark. What do you say? Yeah, let's run it. All right, today on the podcast, I have a very special guest and a guy that uh, I've looked up to before, you know, for the longest time. And actually, Mark, you've inspired me to start my own podcast, which probably a lot of other podcasters out there could say the same. But uh, Mark Kenyon, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having me here. It's it's fun to get to. I always I always enjoy getting to flip roles and go from being a podcast host to being a podcast guest. Uh, the guest side, I think, is a lot more fun. I can just kick back, <laughs> yep, and and chat and not think about where we're going with things. So it's this a lot is fun easier, and I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. And it's a lot less it stressful. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm kicked back here with a cup of coffee, hanging out, happy as a clam. Awesome, man. Well, good deal. I'm glad we could find some time to get on here. You know, when Thanksgiving's coming up here, you know, rapidly, and and uh, you know, for us here in Michigan, it's you know, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and followed you a lot, and you know, once the Orange Army comes out here, it's the bow hunting is kind of <laughs> goes to uh, the wayside for sure, and that's. Um, you know, the busy season, you know, leads up to about November 15th. And then it's kind of like, well, I got to make sure and see if there's any deer out there left chasing, you know, yeah. worth chasing. Yeah. So um, I'm glad we could get on here and do this. So first I want to kick it off and, you know, you have, uh, you're getting ready to launch, well, you've already launched your book, correct? Yeah, it's kind of a weird launch in that there's a special program with Amazon where they released my book in one format on Amazon a month early. So that okay. happened, but it gets published everywhere else starting December 1st. Gotcha. So coming up here soon, is that Sunday, I believe? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Very cool. Well, in your, in your book's called That Wild Country, and it's something I wanted to get into a little bit with you because um, I haven't looked at too much into it and I wanted to hear firsthand from you and I guess the bit the first question I want to know is you know what was your goal with with the book and what did you want to accomplish yeah so so yeah the book's called that wild country an epic journey through the past present and future of America's public lands so basically the book excuse me covers the last 150 200 years of history uh helping explain how we got to have all the public land that we do here in america we have more than 640 million acres of federal public land that we can hunt on that we can fish on that we can camp or climb or mountain bike or hike on Uh, incredible places things all the way from yellowstone national park to you know a wilderness area the beaver basin wilderness area up in uh, the up of michigan Uh, we've got these places all over the country uh, that are just really damn special so i wanted to understand how do we get these things and what is going on right now that is impacting the future of these places? Because as, as maybe you guys have seen over the last five years or so, there's been a pretty good amount of controversy around public lands in America um, with certain contingents out there saying that we should be selling off our public lands or transferring them. Um, and so kind of in the midst of all that happening from around 2015, 2018 or so, 
I started wondering, you know, what does this all mean? What's happening? Um, I'd gotten to spend a lot of time in these places over the course of my life, um, but I didn't really understand the context, how we got here, how we can make sure they're still around. So, so that was why I kind of embarked on this journey, trying to study all those things, trying to learn the history, and then trying to go and see as many of these places as I possibly could to, to kind of ground myself in this, uh, in this whole issue. So I went and I caribou hunted in Alaska. I black bear hunted in Montana. I fly fish in Wyoming. I backpacked in Michigan. I, camped and, and hiked with my wife in southern utah i climbed mountains in nevada i uh, shed hunted and camped in western north dakota uh, and went to all sorts of different types of public land national parks wilderness areas uh, bureau of land management land national forest land um, uh, there's all these different pieces and parts to the whole issue of public lands that as just a kind of casual user growing up i never understood it all i just knew that hey when you walk out the back door of my northern michigan deer camp if you walk 50 yards to the north you get onto public land and i've got eight thousand acres of it to go explore i knew that i had no idea how i got that i had no idea how lucky i was to have that um i knew that i could go out and go to yellowstone and maybe see some critters but i had no idea how we got yellowstone or what the future of yellowstone could look like so that's why I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I realized that for a lot of average Americans, there's this information gap. We, we, a lot of people don't even realize what we have. And if you do realize what we have, most people don't realize how we got it or what's going on right now and how to make sure we still have these places in the future. So I want to fill that information gap. I wanted to inspire some people to go out and see these places themselves. And then finally, I wanted to encourage people to look past some of our small differences, look past political affiliation and all that kind of crap. And remember that these places are all of ours. And if we want to keep these places for, for our kids to be able to hunt on and for us to be able to explore, if we want to keep these things around, it's going to require us working together. And, and that is why I did this book. That's what I was hoping this book could help achieve. Um, and it's, that's kind of what the book covers. It covers all that information I just kind of told you about. And then it weaves a series of my own adventures on public lands throughout that information um, to kind of try to flesh out that story. That's awesome because I'm in the same boat like you were. You know, I, I realize we have these public lands and I, I grew up in Michigan as well, central Michigan. And, and, you know, I was privileged to be able to have private land to my disposal my whole life. Um, my dad has hunted our family farm since the 70s. That's where I cut my teeth. It's 215 acres. You know, and I never really, you know, when I was in high school and everything, I never really thought of public land. I knew what it was, but I'm like, why Why should I have to go hunt it or even explore it when I have this beautiful tract of land that I can do whatever I want on? Um, so I totally get where you're coming from, and I'm I'm where you at you're at or you were um, before. Like, how did we get these public lands, and and what do we do or what do we need to do to be able to sustain them and keep them and make them flourish? And that's where it's really um, intriguing to me, and that's why I need to pick your book up because if you're you know if you explain all that stuff and where they've kind of come from, and then I like the twist that you put on it. Um, with, you know, you went and explored all these and you, and you, you didn't just go hunting and, you know, walk around and, 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 and looked at these lands while you're hunting. You actually went out there and sought out, 
you know, different things, like you said, hiking and, and shed hunting and, and fly fishing, you've used every entity that a public land offers and you've tried one yeah. of those things. That's what's really cool to me. And, um, I think that speaks a lot, honestly. Um, yeah. And, and, and I hope that's, I hope that resonates with people. And, and, and like I alluded to an important thing that I, that I think about a lot and that I hope, you know, more people can think about is just, you know, it as anyone knows who watches the news or looks at your social media feed, there's a lot of division out there right now in the 100%, country. There's yep. a lot of people that are just kind of, I don't know, we're, we're, we're creating these little tribes, these little groups, yep. and we're, and we're kind of demonizing people who think differently than, than ourselves. And, and I've been guilty of it at times too, but I, but I definitely think that if we can try to become a little bit more open to looking past some of these trivial differences and saying, Hey, here's something we have a shared interest in. Maybe you live in the city and I live in the country, or maybe I own a gun and you don't, or maybe you like to mountain bike and I like to hunt, um, whatever there might be. Um, you shop at REI, I shop at Cabela's, whatever. We still love the outdoors. Right. We still love wild animals. And, and my hope was that, um, by sharing this story in a variety of different ways, ways that I truly do enjoy doing these things. I really enjoy doing sharing it in a way that's relatable for all sorts of different types of people. It might help achieve that goal of, of telling a story that's relatable to all sorts as well. For sure. And I guess another thing I want to know is, you know, when you started this process and you know, you wanted to do this book and you wanted to document it, um, did you pick out like a certain certain different pieces of public land around the US or around the country that you're like I want to hit these because or these are you know more historical or were you just like this is a cool area I'm going through here and I just want to stop it and and see what this one has to offer. Yeah. So I definitely um had a reason for including the different locations I did within the book. Um my wife and I are really lucky in that we both work remotely. We can work from anywhere. So, you know, over the last decade, we've been able to spend sometimes like two to four months a year living out on public lands, camped out, exploring different spots. So, so I've got to go to a lot of different places um, sometimes just because, hey, this place looks cool. Let's check it out. Um, but for the book's purpose, I wanted to include certain stories that tied into the information that I was trying to share within a given portion. Gotcha. So, for example, um, the second chapter, second main part of the book um, takes place in Theodore Roosevelt National Park and the Badlands of Western North Dakota. And that seemed really relevant to the portion of public land history I wanted to talk about at that point because Theodore Roosevelt in the late 1800s and early 1900s um, really was the driver behind a massive amount of change in this country and establishing a lot of the public lands we have now today. So I wanted to talk about Theodore Roosevelt's impact. Where better to do that than in the place where he first came out west and experienced. When he was a young guy in his mid-20s, he went out for his first western hunting adventure. I mean, just like a lot of us can talk about and can remember our own experiences, heading out west for the first time, seeing the big wide open. Well, he did that in western North Dakota, and fell head over heels in love with it out there was seeing buffalo for the first time was seeing elk and pronghorn and bears and 
it was a holy crap kind of moment for him. He right away realized I need to spend more time out here. He bought a ranch and he became a rancher and a hunter <clears> out there and started coming back there year after year after year. But over the course of those years he spent in North Dakota, he started seeing wildlife populations declining and he started seeing open space being churned up and developed. And he started seeing the impacts that were being made uh, by human uh, development. And he realized that things were only going to get worse every decade after that. And a hundred years from then, if things didn't change, none of this would be there anymore. And so he had the foresight to realize that we being him and people like him had to start speaking up for these places. So subsequently over the next 40 years of his life, he did that um, to a degree that's probably not been matched by anyone else in history. You know, all the things he did, he started the Boone and Crockett club. He developed a popular awareness in the nation about conservation and about wildlife. He eventually became the governor of New York and instituted all sorts of laws within New York to protect places. And then finally, as, as we all know, he became president and just had this unbelievable impact. And, and he always pointed back to Western North Dakota as being the place that it all started and the place that, that really opened his eyes to the need for that kind of work. And so it only made sense that I should go to that place to try to understand Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. And so all the other places I picked throughout the book, they tied into or connected to a person or a, a something within that history or that current event I was exploring as I went throughout. So, you know, other trips include a pack rafting and fishing trip in the Bob Marshall wilderness of Northern Montana. Unbelievable place. Um, did a backpacking trip in the Picture Rocks National Lakeshore up in the UP of Michigan. Uh, did a backpacking and peak bagging trip in the Ruby Mountains Wilderness in Nevada. Um, a whole bunch of different things like that. And it all kind of ties into some portion of that narrative to try to, you know, try to make the history or the information interesting and accessible and engaging. I didn't want to write just a history book. Nobody right. wants to read right. just a history book. Um, I wanted to write a book that was a story, like an adventure that's a lot of fun to, to dive into. And along the way, you learn some stuff. Yep. You know, and I appreciate you shedding light on that too for people like I'm going to say myself because I, you know, I'm very, I, I, I don't know a lot about it and I'm going to have to read it for sure because, you know, to look at Theodore Roosevelt and back when he did that, not having the resources we have now and being able to, you know, see kind of in the future, you know, and, and see the decline of what's going on and, and kind of guess what the outcome was going to be if he didn't do anything about it. It's very powerful, you know, and, and mm -hmm. for him to do that, I mean, he paved the way for all of this, really. He really did. He absolutely did. There's so many, so many examples he set, you know, for, for what we can be thinking about in the future, whether it be just the impact of standing up, whether it be the impact of, um, like I talked about earlier, the whole idea of working with people differently than you. He was another great example of that too, because he was this avid big game hunter, um, doing incredible things when it came to protecting wildlife and preserving public lands and um, all those things. But at the same time, he had a counterpart, a guy named John Muir, who was the founder of the Sierra Club, who was not a hunter. He wasn't a fan of hunting, but he also wanted to protect these wild places. He also wanted to keep wilderness areas and all that and so those guys despite you know being very different in a lot of ways despite the fact they didn't agree on certain things 
you know, they went out there and they camped out together and they went to Yosemite National Park for three nights and they said, hey, let's talk about our differences. Let's talk about these things we also do share and let's figure out some ways to get our two communities together to work towards that stuff. He was doing that back in 1907, That's more crazy. than 100 years ago, <laughs> that was going on. And I think Theodore Roosevelt was, was showing us exactly what we should be thinking about now um, in a pretty great way. So, crazy, man. so yeah. yeah, pretty awesome dude really is. Justin, do you have anything to add on that? I know we're kind of stealing the show over here. I didn't know if you had anything to... <laughs> no, uh, I'm just, I mean, obviously just listening to both of you guys, you know, I can, I feel like I can, I'm, I'm going to play the, the middleman here and Aaron, like I, I'm with you. I grew up in upstate New York. I hunted private land, you know, just permission farms. And it was like looked down upon to hunt state land. Like we call it state land back home. So it's like, you never know what you're going to run into. Like most likely it's going to be other hunters. Like you don't want to bother. Like you've got this great ground. Like why do anything else? You know? And the more I got into filming, you know, I started experience, you know, had a little bit of experiences with, with some public land hunts, like in South Dakota, um, and started to realize, you know, just as a camera guy, you know, just how much of a resource is really out there. And then I moved to Iowa uh, in March of 18 and Aaron, you know, this story, but you know, I didn't, I didn't buy a farm. I didn't buy land. I, you've been to my house. I live in the city and for as much as I love hunting, I don't love it for $5,000 an acre. Um, (laughs) so I, I, you know, and you know, we talked briefly before we started recording, but, um, you know, I'm a, I'm a whitetail guy and I, I've, I had no other option and the thought of just pursuing public land whitetails in the holy land of whitetail, you know, ground, I was like, I'm going to, this is going to be great. I'm going to still see and have the potential to shoot bigger deer than I ever have in New York or anywhere else I've ever hunted. And I had great success last year, my first year in here, and I killed again on public land this year and not only in Iowa, but I went on my little bear tour back in the spring. I did Idaho, Montana, and took my wife to Saskatchewan. And Idaho, Montana was public land hunts. And, I mean, I filmed in Idaho, and we killed on day one. And I hunted by myself in Montana, never having been there. You know, just picked a piece of public land on the map, you know, National Forest, and just went for it. Gave myself three days and, you know, came out successful and then, you know, I just, I, I drew a, a general mule deer tag. I hunted the Wasatch Front in Utah, and I drew a general elk tag in Montana and, you know, had some amazing experiences out there. And, Mark, to your point, you know, talking about Teddy Roosevelt and, you know, somebody that sticks out in my mind is Aldo Leopold with the San County Almanac. And, you know, when you understand what these guys saw for the first time, like when you read those books and you understand what, you know, their context is and, and how they perceive this resource. Like I'll tell you what, like 2019 has been an eye opening experience for me. Like those words resonated with me all season on every one of those hunts. When I finally laid eyes on those places for the first time as a hunter, you know, and, you know, a conservationist and, like, like I said, I'm I'm kind of in the middle. I, I hear both of you guys, and I appreciate everything we're talking about. I'm not trying to 
play devil's advocate at all. I just, it was such an eye-opening season for me because I did finally take advantage of, of public land as a resource in multiple states and kind of just said, you know, I, now I get it. Like, holy shit, this is, this is what they're talking about. And like being out there by myself, just waking up to that and having free reign on, on all that land for any animal and, you know, legally, of course, but. Well, and a lot of different activities too. You know, it's not just like hunting. You can do so many different things on public land to your point, Mark, what you were saying, you know, a lot of different people can enjoy it. It is. It's it's not just the hunting. It's just, that was my, that was what opened it up to me. When I I finally just said, I'm I'm doing it and I'm going to take the chance. And, you know, I, I spent almost a month and a half on the road and, I just went and did it and that anybody can do that. And that's, that's all it takes is the slack in your pants to say, I'm doing it and, yep. and just go. Yeah. It's a pretty incredible thing. I'm glad you got to experience that. It's, it really is. Once you get a taste of what's out there and what's available to you, it's, it's hard not to fall in love with it. And it's hard not to, you know, start giving a damn at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, for me, it was more of like a, you know, it was that, the opportunity to to be there and just have that at my disposal, like you said, and just have that experience and just take it in. Like everybody always says, you know, the kill is the bonus. It's everything else that that is the hunt. And, you know, it was just that could not be more true when you're in that situation. And it's you don't it's so cliche to say, but you don't have to kill to make it worth your time. Like, yeah, it was just. I don't. I don't know how to explain it. To be honest with you, I'm kind of struggling. But it was definitely a special. It was a special experience. I 100% get it, Mark. I got a question for you here, and I kind of want to transition. You know, stay on the public land thing, but I want to transition to whitetail a little bit and and hunting. Um, This is something I've been battling with the last couple years, and you know, like I told you, I, I grew up hunting private land my whole my whole life, and I've never really had to have. I've never really had to go and, you know, hunt or go look for public land. Well, two years ago, I just bit the bullet in the spring and I'm like, you know what, I'm going to go find a piece of public land that I've never been to, e-scout the heck out of it, and then I'm going to go boots on the ground and try to find out, you know, some, some, find some new spots. And I'm like, even if I can get one sit into public land and, and have that experience, whether whatever it is, I, I see anything, I get to get to harvest anything, you know, I just want to experience it. So I guess my question to you is year after year. So two years ago, I did that and I did it again this year and I have not sit on public land yet, but my battle is, and I think you might have it a little bit as well, because I think I've heard you talk about it before, is that my private land you know, I do so much my private land. I love managing whitetails. I love putting food plots in. I like doing habitat improvements, um, hanging stands. I love all that extra stuff. It's actually more important to me and more exciting than the hunting side in a lot of a lot of aspects. And you know, I find myself in private as I have more opportunities and and better deer in my head, you know, cause I, I, I can produce some pretty good deer on these properties that I have that I get them on camera and I watch them all year. And then it's like, you know, public land just kind of keeps getting shifted to the back burner. You know, is there a way, you know, and I think you've, you've dealt with it a little bit, but how do you combat that? Cause I know you've, you've done some public land in Michigan and you do a lot of it out, out of state, but 
you know, let's talk Michigan, I guess, here in particular. Like, you know, you've got good deer on private land. You know, what is some way to, like, I guess I don't really know what I'm trying to say. I, I'm just trying to say, like, what is a way to say, yeah. yeah, how do you balance it and how do you say, well, I'm going to do public land regardless? Yeah, I mean, I don't think anyone should feel bad for hunting private land or for, you know, wanting to take advantage of the great opportunity you have there. Um, nothing wrong with that at all. I certainly, I, I love the private land I have access to. I love the opportunity to do the things that you said, you know, manage it, prove it, uh, get to know a place like that, improve a place like that. That's awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm never going to feel guilty for doing that. At the same time, um, I love the challenge inherent in trying to hunt public land. Um, and, and the opportunities that can provide you too. So I've, I've looked at it in two ways. Number one, um, lots of times when I do, and I know you said Michigan, but I'm, I'm going to say that I always look at uh, public land as a really cool way to do an out-of-state experience because lots of times these, excuse me, these out-of-state hunts, you know, it's quick. It's a week or a weekend or whatever it might be. Um, and I realize it's going to be a challenge and, and part of the fun for me on those kinds of hunts is learning a new place, trying to figure out that puzzle in four days or six days or whatever. Um, and by going out and doing that kind of hunt, I'm doing this totally different experience. And I don't feel like I'm, you know, I'm ignoring my private land back home or that I'm not taking advantage. I'm not, I'm not tempted to hunt that private land because right. I'm just saying, you know, for this week, I'm not worried about killing a four and a half or a buck or whatever it might be. I'm interested in throwing myself into a new situation and, and experiencing everything it has to give me and, you know, figuring it out and having fun that kind of way. So I do a lot of out of state public land hunts like that, that are, that are a ton of fun and, and challenge me in state. Um, I still do some public land hunting too. Um, but not as much because I do have the private land. And oftentimes here in my home state, I, I get kind of wonky about trying to kill like one deer um and so i'm really focused on that but as you guys know when you're targeting mature bucks especially in a state like michigan with so much hunting pressure and with relatively fewer mature bucks than a lot of other states um you have to be really really careful about when you hunt you have to be really careful about how often you pressure any given location because if you make too many mistakes um a mature buck here in michigan simply won't tolerate it and he'll start either he'll relocate a little bit or he'll stop moving in daylight where you can hunt. Um, so I'm very picky about when I apply that pressure on my private land. At the same time though, I don't want to not be hunting. I exactly. want to hunt as much yep. as I possibly can. I want to take advantage of whatever time I have available. So that's when I find public land is a really cool option because I've got these backup spots that are challenging or different, uh, but it can get me out there in the woods. I'm still, playing that game of chess i'm still trying to figure stuff out um it's still making me a better hunter it's damn fun just be out there in the woods so taking advantage of public land in that kind of way is a great way to kind of fill out your hunting schedule so you don't feel bad about not hunting um you also don't feel bad about burning out your best spots right um so i do that a lot i've got a whole bunch of little public land spots i'll just go to randomly for a day um because i want to be hunting but i don't want to hunt my best spot and yeah, I go into it with, Hey, maybe I'll get a bonus buck. Maybe we'll get lucky. Maybe that scouting will pay off this time. Most times it doesn't. Um, cause you know, I'm not applying a ton of time and energy to it, but it's, it's a great way to just keep at it, keep learning, keep figuring things out. Um, so you can take that route. 
you certainly could go a different way and you could just, I mean, something I thought about something I literally just, Oh, I don't know. An hour ago was thinking about, um, I was just looking at a trail camera card from up, up North. I've got a family deer camp up North and we've got 40 acres of private land that are surrounded by another 8,000 acres of public. And every year I, I go out there and we'd spend a little time up at deer camp and it's, it's a great time. Um, but I never spend a ton of time hunting up there. Usually it's just a weekend or two weekends or something like that. Um, and it's pretty low key. It's usually in gun season when I'm exhausted from a marathon of a month leading up to that, you know, all these, all day sits chasing whitetails with a bow. So by the time I get up North, I'm kind of like, hey, I just want to drink my coffee and take it easy. Yep. Um, but I got to thinking today, what, what could I do if instead of going to Southern Michigan or Iowa or Ohio or wherever from November 1st to November 14th, what if I just focused all that time up North on that public land up there? There's all sorts of land. I'm getting peps. Just looking at my camera car. I've got a couple of nice bucks up there. I'm just never putting the time or energy or effort to try to kill one of them. Right. Um, it would be incredibly difficult. It, there's not a lot of deer. There's not a lot of old deer. There's other people. Um, but it's also one of my favorite places in the entire world. What if I took the energy and time I applied to my private land hunting down here, put it up there? How cool would that be? Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be a totally different experience. It'd be a totally different set of expectations I would take into the hunt. But I bet you'd be awesome in its own kind of unique way. So I'm already thinking, like, maybe maybe I just want a different experience next year. Maybe I'm not going to worry about shooting a 150-inch five-year-old buck or something. Maybe can I shoot a 110-inch three-year-old up north in the big woods on public land where I learned to hunt, where I have all these great memories, but it's so damn hard to hunt. Um, maybe that would be cool. Yeah, uh, You know, it's just, for me, and I think a lot of people um, – Earlier, as I you know, I grew up hunting, just wanted to shoot any deer, and then I got to shoot some bucks, and then eventually I was like, okay, now I want to shoot big bucks. Um, and then yeah, that was a great progression for me. I learned a lot, started developing some consistency with how to, you know, learning how to kill mature bucks, um, wanting to do it. I still obviously want to do that. I'm always trying to push myself, but at the same time, I'm also finding myself um, the last couple of years more and more wanting to or being more excited about having a certain kind of adventure or experience less worrying about oh i have to shoot 150 inch buck or 140 inch buck or Mm -hmm. whatever it is um so i went up to the boundary waters of minnesota this year way up northern minnesota this wilderness area you can only canoe into it um crazy amazing place hardly any deer but i wanted this like really unique backcountry deer hunt adventure and, and I did that trip knowing, hey, I'm going to burn a week of my time in mid to late October that I'd probably have a lot better chance to kill a nice buck somewhere else. But I'm going to burn that time because I want this experience. Yep. Um, and so I'm finding myself more and more doing that. Not everyone's going to be like that. That's just me. Um, but that's one way to think about, you know, utilizing public lands. Go out there, have a different kind of experience. Um, something that I'm thinking about more and more often. Well, and, and that kind of coincides to a trip I was on uh, September, not this last September, but the September before. We went on a moose hunt for 30 days, um, and when we were we were trying to figure out places to go, we had found a river, or sorry, uh, a big lake system in northern Saskatchewan, northern northern Saskatchewan, that nobody on record 
Um, cause a lot of those, uh, concessions up there, people have records of all that stuff and nobody on record has set foot on that piece of ground in that lake since like the sixties. So we wanted to be the ones to go up there and go up there and document it. We did it and we had a blast. Um, you know, didn't see a lot of animals. We, we did end up seeing a moose on day 18 and was able to, to take him, but we did so much fishing and it was just cool to experience something that nobody's been to in so long and that was a really cool um uh it was a really cool feeling to have every time you get up and you walk outside the tent it's like man i'm living this life right now you know that nobody has you know been up here and and did this in a long time so that was that was awesome and uh to pull out some really big lakers and northern pike so that was really fun as well so um, that Heck trip yeah. will always go down as one of my favorites too. And, and I've been all over being able to do that from New Zealand to Alaska, to Northwest territories, to, um, Italy. I mean, I've been a lot, a lot of places and that one ranks up there pretty high. So, um, it's pretty cool, but yeah. I definitely yeah. get what you're saying by, uh, you know, doing the deer camp thing up there because that's a different hunting. I mean, my family, we have a deer camp up uh, in the UP as well. And I haven't been there since I was 17 and it's all public land. We don't have any private land around it, but it's always been a thought of mine to be like, I want to take a couple buddies up there and let's go do this. You know, let's say we're going to take 10 days and we're just going to figure it out and try to hit a migration or try to find some deer. Cause there's not yeah. a lot of deer up there, you know, and I thought that'd be a cool experience as well. Yeah. It's, it doesn't always have to be about the end result yep. is what I'm finding. Right. Uh, of course, I love setting goals for myself. I love filling the tag. I love putting meat in the freezer and antlers in the wall. No doubt about it. But sometimes there's more to it as well. For sure. 100%. Well, I, w- I want to take this time to transition a little bit again here. And I, I want to kind of go to some more relevant questions that's going to be happening here deer season as we sit, if you don't mind. Yeah, um, for sure. I want to start with, you know, we're, we're right around Thanksgiving here. And... You know, for us Michigan guys and a lot of other people out there in the Midwest too, you know, we've had uh, Michigan's gun opener since the 15th here. And I want to know what your mindset is for the latter part of November going into December and what your tactics are, you know, if if you haven't been tagged out already. Yeah, so it is definitely this time of, of, of change in Michigan because... Right, the first two weeks of November, we're getting into the peak of rutting activity. We're out there gung ho as bow hunters, but then when the 15th arrives, everything changes because there's you know 600,000 or however many gun hunters that all of a sudden fill the woods and immediately deer react to that huge increase in hunting pressure. Um, so I have approached it kind of uniquely compared to a lot of people, in that. Uh, a lot of people, once gun season hits, it's, it's go time for them. They're going to put in a bunch of time because they've got the gun. I actually look at it the reverse, and I see gun hunting season is actually the time to pull back mm-hmm. and leave my private land spots alone because there's an opportunity if you create a sanctuary. I call it my, I call it my gun season sanctuary idea, where basically I will try to make whatever lands I have. I've got like a couple different places I can hunt that just I can hunt. Uh, and I will let those places pretty much sit, usually almost completely untouched, and try to, if there's a mature buck I'm after, um, hopefully he will realize that my property is a safe place to be and he's going to hunker down 
excuse me, and survive the coming two weeks. Excuse me, with the hiccups over here. <laughs> um, so, so that yeah, that's one thing I can do. And then number two, you can also then by having by creating a sanctuary, by creating this little pocket of safety that's surrounded by hunters, there might be other nice bucks or even younger bucks on neighboring properties that then will file into your sanctuary and survive gun season um, because of it too. And so, not only does this give me a better chance of having a buck to hunt that year in the late season right because i've created a safe place and i haven't spooked the bucks off my property to get shot by a neighbor now that mature buck survives i can hunt him in december or late november or maybe a bunch of year and a half olds and two and a half year olds that would have gotten shot if i was in there every day and pushing deer around instead they survived and i then can have like a disproportionate impact on the future age structure of my area. So if I want there to be more mature bucks, if I'd like to practice quality deer management principles, um, but maybe I'm frustrated. Like I'm just one guy. My neighbors are going to do whatever they want to do. Um, this whole sanctuary idea during gun season, I think allows me to have a bigger impact than usual because a whole bunch of deer flood in and only, you know, I, I get to, I get to impose my trigger pulling decisions or not to pull decisions now on my area. So all of a sudden, you do that for three, four or five years, and there's a lot more nice bucks running around than might have otherwise. So that's what I do most gun seasons. Uh, I'll, I'll get out there a couple times, maybe if there's a specific buck that I've seen still moving in daylight during right. gun season. Like I'm after a buck this year. I was all over him in both seasons, but couldn't quite get close enough. I glassed him up the fourth day of gun season, and he was still alive and moving in daylight on this property. I was just scouting from the road. So I said, okay. He's still moving in daylight. He's in here. Uh, the corn is coming down right now. It's it's one of those special opportunities where maybe I'll take a stab, but I usually wouldn't. So I did in that case. Um, but overall, I like to keep pressure really low. Um, I'm not going to go in there on a weekend when there's hunters definitely out all over the place. You know, if I'm going to check my cameras, I'm going to do it in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week, when pressure is the lowest and when there's the least likely chance that I might bump something off of my farm. And get shot in our neighbors um so so that's a very long roundabout way of saying that's how i typically approach the last two weeks of november but once we get to the very end of gun season or into december then i start to try to take advantage of what i hopefully created yep. where i've hopefully created this little safe place where these deer still feel comfortable they still feel comfortable moving during daylight and i know okay i'm gonna i'm gonna be careful about when i strike i'm gonna wait for the right moments I, I'm going to make sure I know, you know, where they're at, what they're feeding on. And lots of times, once you get into that late season time period, it becomes more of a food focused game again. And then I start having these targeted strikes. And I can still do that into December when a lot of other people in Michigan can't mm -hmm. because those bucks that were around, they're either dead or they're, you know, nocturnal and hardly right. moving during daylight uniquely i'm able to usually have a decent buck to still get after in december because of that yep and you know i i try to i look at it as almost because my situation is kind of unique in the fact that i'm never here in michigan in the rut it's very unique if i am here in the rut in the last seven years because of my job i you know mm -hmm. I, I film television shows and produce and stuff like that so we're always on the road somewhere in the midwest um, this year I was fortunate enough to pull two tags and, and be successful twice in two different states. But um, I kind of look at it as when I get back, usually our big trip, we get back around the 20th of November, right around Thanksgiving, right first. And um, 
I almost look at it as a second season for me because I haven't hunted my farm. I have two farms in Michigan and my one farm, my wife hunts it, you know, first couple days of rifle season or bow season. But there's, you know, since we've had our daughter, she's two and a half years old now and, you know, she doesn't get out hunting a lot. But our farm, it's it's 120 acres, but there's only five acres of timber on it. And I've done enough work in the last couple of years, habitat improvement, that deer really like to use it as a sanctuary. So when gun season hits... It's almost the same thing that you're talking about. The, the deer seem to come in here and, and call it a home. If there's food there, this year there's not food there, so they're, like, not there. <laughs> I, I'm struggling to get deer on camera right now. But I almost look at it as, it like, another season for me. When I get home, I usually don't have to film myself. I can just go and hunt and get out there. And, yeah. I, you know, I feel like I like to get the bow back out and um, – and like you said, if you have a unique scenario where you can take a gun and be successful that way, I will do that too. So I just, I just like to hear other people's opinions on it and, um, and kind of see what they do just to maybe trigger some more mindsets. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it, it doesn't have to, I know a lot of my buddies view gun season as the, the end of the world because, because so many bucks do get killed and lots of times the bucks they've been after or the bucks that they were passing get shot. And that is a reality for a lot of us in Michigan. And it's a reality for me some years too. Um, but if you have the chance to, to try something like this, it can sometimes change that story. Um, and like your season doesn't have to be done. There's definitely good hunting to be had in December. If you can either create or, or even find one of these pockets, because sometimes you don't have the opportunity to create something like this. Maybe you share a bunch of properties, but if you can find the spots that no one else is hunting for, for whatever reason, whether that's on public land or private, um, find that sanctuary on November 28th or December 2nd, and you can get into some good hunting too. It's just all about hunting pressure. Once gun season happens, it all comes down to the impacts of that pressure and finding where deer have moved to or how their behavior has changed because of that. Um, and then, of course, like you said, food really helps too. <laughs> it does. And this year I have none of it. <laughs> That's so, brutal. And I'm actually trying something a little different right now. And I feel like the rut is still going on. I'm seeing, I'm seeing little bucks still chasing around my farm, um, but a little year and a half. And I've taken actually a little speed tour when I got home and tried to find some open scrapes and some fresh sign. And I actually found one, um, put my cell nice. cam up and... I've got every morning and every night right now, I've got bucks, little bucks, you know, year and a half, nothing two and a half or older, and does hitting that scrape every morning. So it's like, okay, it's working right now, but I just need that three and a half, four and a half year old buck that I'm looking for to show up. And I'm thinking it's going to come, but I'm almost thinking I might run out of time. Those does might not be an asterisk anymore and it might be pretty tough sledding since I said there was no food on the farm for late season. So, yeah that's it's a hard balancing act that's for sure yeah and that farms in in ag country and my brother-in-law he farms it all and it was all wheat this year and now it's just plowed up field and i did put in two two uh two late season plots and one's underwater right now because of all the rain we've gotten and it's just the deer aren't hitting it right now i'm kind of hoping it freezes up and dries up but i it's wishful thinking so (laughs) we will see yeah i know that feeling i've had some food plot 
failures or things not going the way I wanted to as well. And, and that's always disappointing. Yeah. Well, I'm going to move on to the next one here. And, you know, deer season for a lot of people is a grind. And it's it's something that uh, whether you're a weekend warrior or you can do it, uh, you know, during the weeks and the weekends, um, I want to know how you stay hungry to, to go out and hunt after, you know, Thanksgiving in that latter part of the season, because it can be grueling and it could be, it's a lot easier to be like, well, I'm not going to get out of bed this morning because it's cold and I just am comfortable. So what, is there things that you do to, to kind of stay motivated to want to go out there and, and hunt late season? So part of it is simply trying to make sure I have interesting options still available. You know, so whether that be doing something like what we just talked about to make sure I've still got quality hunting in Michigan or trying to plan a fun trip or something still in December uh, that you can be excited about to go do. Uh, For a while there, I used to kind of look at December as like, oh, well, it's over now. Once the rut's passed, it's all over and kind of fizzle out. But there's tons of great opportunities out there across the country for really good late season hunting. Um, and that's a ton of fun. So I don't think anyone should feel like their season has to be done once, you know, once the 15th or once gun season comes and goes. Um, so think about using some time to do a hunt like that. Um, you of course can try to manage your own property to be a great late season place. And to do that, it's pretty simple. Just keep the pressure low and have lots of great late season food. Um, but you know, another thing I do, you know, of course, having a cool hunt or nice bucks to hunt is going to keep you excited and motivated. But another thing I do is a little bit different than how I approach things. Even, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, I used to think that I really, really wanted to be successful in my hunting and I was very goal oriented. Still am. Um, but I thought the only way to do that was to hunt, 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 never stop hunting, go, go, go every single day. And if you took a day off, you are not, giving it your all you're not working hard enough you are being weak and that was bad so i would hunt every single opportunity i'd feel guilty if i didn't um that is a surefire recipe for burnout and it's a quick route to not enjoying something that you do actually love most of the time so what i kind of realized that for me was the case is that it's okay to take a little time away from it if you find yourself not enjoying it anymore or feeling reluctant to go out um feeling like it's becoming a job you don't want to go and and partake in that's kind of your that's your inner self saying hey maybe you need a little reset um and i used to not allow myself to do that now maybe i'm just getting old maybe it's because i'm a dad or maybe it's because i'm getting a little smarter (laughs) now i'm realizing it's okay to reset it's okay to take a little time away because it's going to make it that much better when you come back so what that means for me is that I go balls to the wall all the way till November 15th. And then as I just told you guys, I take the gun season period a little bit lighter. I'm going to not hunt quite as much. I'll get out here and there. Um, But I use that as my refreshment period, you know, go spend some time with family around Thanksgiving. Not going to feel guilty about not hunting. I'm just going to reconnect with my family, try to take care of those other obligations. And then once December hits, I'm, reinvigorated I'm, I'm chomping to get back out there i'm excited to see what made it through gun season what's going to be out there what's hitting the food sources checking the cameras doing my scouting it's like october 1st all over again um so just by taking you know a couple weeks where i slow things down 
um, helps me a lot, recharges my batteries for the next four weeks here in Michigan or wherever I'm going to be traveling to. Um, it's pretty simple. It's nothing profound. It's not some great secret tactic, but it's kind of human nature, kind of human psyche requires like ebbs and flows. We can right. go, 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 but we need these valleys. There's going to be peaks and there's going to be valleys, and we have to allow ourselves to have those valleys to build up to the next peak. Um, and I'm slowly getting better and better at knowing when it's time to do that. And I, I think it's helping. Um, at least I hope it is. Yep. And I, I kind of find myself in the same boat with the last two falls because of our first, you know, kid. I, I have a daughter and, you know, and being dad life and everything. My wife, she's a nurse, so she works long hours and you, she usually works three days in a row. And, you know, if those you know, weekends, like last weekend, it was, you know, Peyton, my daughter and I, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, we didn't get to see mom, you know? So that was like, yeah. and, and when I get off the road, you know, I want to spend time with them so much and I really feel get, guilty than in getting a babysitter. I, I don't want to do that yeah. because I haven't seen her in 25 days and I want to be able to have the dad time, you know, and, and get her in the mm-hmm. outdoors as well and, and let her experience that also so i I could i definitely am feeling the same way you are where it's like you got to pump the brakes a little bit but man i really should be out this morning because it's a big drop in temperature and it's the rut so um i definitely it's a balancing act yeah it's a a tough one too yeah it really is and and i'm certainly still you know still working through it still figuring it out but uh but i think the most important thing is is to simply try if you at least are aware enough that it is a struggle and it has to be something you got to work on, I think that's the first and most important step. Um, Sometimes, and I was guilty of this for a long time, and some people are for a lot of their years, they never bother to look up and realizing that the rest of their life is passing by and the people they care about are losing touch with them because all they're focused on is killing a giant buck. Right. And there's a whole lot of friendships lost, marriages destroyed, disenchanted children because of how addicted and obsessed we get with deer. And I mean, that's, that's part of what's awesome about deer and deer hunting is because it can, you can become so captured by it and obsessed by it. And I, I unapologetically love this stuff. Um, but at the same time, you gotta be able to, you know, pull back from the tunnel vision every once in yep. a while and look at what's around you. Well, Justin, he's only got a wife. He doesn't have to worry about dad life yet, so <laughs> he can come and uh, go whatever he wants. <laughs> life's easy, Justin. <laughs> hey, I I do get to the point where I miss my dog, so I, I got to come. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ellie. <laughs> no, I I will I will just comment on that very quickly and briefly that you know my wife has been my biggest supporter in all this, and despite the fact that we don't have kids yet. Um, she never calls me and says, when are you coming home or hurry up or, you know, it's, what'd you see today? Did you get anything yet? Oh, so close. Like, you know, where's, hope you get a big one. Like she's so supportive and, um, I just got to admit, and and we, we did a podcast with her here a few weeks ago, but I got to admit, I, I realize how privileged I am to have a wife who, who, who says those things versus what a lot of other spouses will would say. Right. If I just, or if, if anyone just went on the road for six weeks, you know, yep. it's, um, I mean, that's, I can't say enough about her for that reason. Yeah. Definitely good to be appreciative of that. Yep. Yes. There's uh 
there, there may be a film festival submission going in revolving around that soon. Nice. Very cool. Nice. Well, Mark, I know we're coming up on an hour here, and I had a lot more questions. Maybe we can do another podcast again where we can cover some more of these. But I do have one more question and yeah. um, to maybe wrap this up on. And what is – I kind of – kind of asked you this before but what is your what are you what are you thinking here in the next couple weeks like as far as what your game plan is are you trying to map it out to where um you're going to get back in and and go hardcore again or is it like pick and choose you know when you have when you see that shooter that you want or pick and choose the days with weather and all that stuff like what is your game plan going forward for the rest of the season yep so my game plan is trying to kill one specific buck here in Michigan that I've been after all year that I've been passing on all sorts of other deer because I've been wanting to kill this one. Um, so I'm going to try to close the deal here before the season closes. Um, he's a four and a half year old, big old eight pointer. I've watched him for a couple of years, passed on him last year. Um, so my thought process and strategy now is I'm going to be going, I'm going to be getting after it, but getting after it a different kind of way. I'm going to be getting after it from a scouting perspective. I'm going to be glassing from the road and from this hillside I can get up on and watching this area a lot. And I'm going to try to not go into this farm at all, except for when conditions are just right. I want to take these kind of surgical strikes. I'm going to try to learn, 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 observe, observe, observe. And then when either a trail camera photo or sighting or weather conditions tell me that there's a good chance he's going to be moving tonight, then I'm going to strike. Um, and hopefully I'm going to do that just a few times. And one of those times is going to work. Um, Cause I think at this time of year, they, once a buck has made it through gun season, the only reason why he made it through gun season is because he was not tolerant of hunting pressure. Right. He evaded all the other hunters and he found a pocket of safety and he stopped moving as much. Most likely that's why he made it. So if that buck is still around. He's going to react just the same way if I start hunting him and do it in a stupid way. Mm-hmm. If I go in there and make a mistake, he's going to right away know, okay, here's another one of those crazy people. I'm going back to safety mode. Um, I want to somehow make this buck feel like the worst's over, he's safe again, and then have him not have any idea that I'm out there watching. And then on December 7th or whatever, when I see him moving in daylight that morning or when I see him moving in daylight the night before – and I see that a cold front's coming the next day. It's going to drop 15 degrees, and I can somehow make the wind work. I'm going to sneak in there at 2.30 in the afternoon, and I'm going to be set up right where he's going to come walking by in about three hours. And and that's what you hope happens. It doesn't always go that way, but that is what I'm going to be working towards over the, the rest of this uh, hunting season, over the next four weeks or so. That's awesome. Now, when you when you bring up cameras, are you monitoring them pretty close, or are you relying more on scouting from a distance? I'll do much more scouting from a distance. Um, I will go in there and maybe check cameras at the very most once a week. Um, and I'll do it midday. I'll drive my uh, four-wheeler only up to the edge of like field edge cameras. I'm not going to go in the timber at all. Um, so I will just check a handful of field edge cameras to just tell me, like, are these deer coming out and feeding in these fields in daylight yet? Or how close is this buck to feeding in daylight? You know, if he's if I'm getting pictures of him 15 minutes after dark in the evening, that's a good sign. Because um, if I wait for the next good weather front to push through, 
and hunt then, that could be the factor that pushes them to move 20 minutes earlier. Um, so I'm going to do that maybe at most once a week, but I'm going to glass a lot of nights, as many nights as I can. I'm going to be glassing a food source or two. Um, I'm, you know, not all farms work out in that kind of way. Not all properties have good sight lines. The farm where this deer lives, I've got a really well positioned couple hills that I can watch back on some kind of secluded fields. Um, and that's helped me a lot. So that's how I'm going to approach it this year with him. Um, I did this exact thing last year with a different buck I was after and, and actually passed on this deer I'm after now. Last year, he was a three-year-old. I passed on him, and 20 minutes later, the buck I was after showed up based off of the sighting I had of him that morning. That's awesome. So it certainly can happen, and um, it, it, it gets me excited because yep. I really love the chess match of hunting a deer like this and trying to – predict when he's going to come through and put all these different puzzle pieces together and look at historical data and look at old trail camera pictures from past years and look at what he did this year and last year and look at what's coming up. And, um, that whole process just, just fires me up. So, uh, I know it's a tough time of year, but it's also a lot of fun. Yep. I'm right there with you, man. I love that chess match and I, I kind of fall victim to being too intimate with one spot or one particular deer like that I fall victim to that all the time like I get blinders on and it's like it's this or nothing and sometimes I feel like I probably push in too aggressively sometimes and it really probably cost me and I didn't even know that it cost me and that's where I fall victim to but I I agree like I you know I've had the biggest deer I've ever been able to chase this year in Michigan show up and I'm not he's not confirmed dead or alive yet so i figured he's he would show up somewhere on social media if he was dead so i'm going that he is still alive so i'm trying to do everything i can right now to just try to pick him back up so we shall see exciting it is exciting i got my i'll cross my fingers for you (laughs) i appreciate it man well and also i appreciate you coming on here and doing this and taking the time to to do this on uh, a lunch hour here and um thank you very much and hopefully we can do this again for sure yeah, it was fun. I appreciate you guys uh, having me on and giving me an opportunity to uh, catch up with you guys and talk about the book and, and all that. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. And uh, good luck the rest of the season as well. Appreciate it. You guys too. Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors. Every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.